Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, this special series on the New Books Network that's about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, host of the series. Today, I'll be talking to David Payne, who is Chief Careers Editor at Nature. The journal Nature stands for Impactful Research, which stands to stay impactful for some time to come. Turn to the second half of any issue of Nature, and there you'll find all the research content you're accustomed to finding in a journal, the articles reporting new studies, the research communications making brief statements from the lab or the field, and the reviews covering lines of research from decades back through today and looking forward into tomorrow. Nature has all of that, and Nature has more. The beauty of Nature, pun intended, is that it includes us humans within its purview. The magazine content of Nature takes on news and society and culture from the angle of science, and wonderfully, this means taking on the career side of science too. I say wonderfully because it can be so easy to forget that science is done by us. It is always a person who has conducted an experiment, always a person who has analyzed the data, always a person who has secured the funds which make all experimentation and analysis possible. People study and become PhDs and face tough decisions on their careers and have conflicts at work and collaborate across national and cultural boundaries. Some people make outstanding PIs, attract the best talent, encourage, challenge, reach new insights by making the team capable of reaching new insights. But just like at every workplace, other people make terrible PIs or terrible lab, te- lab technicians or postdocs or co-authors, and they do not because they lack scientific knowledge or the technical expertise, but because some people, just as anywhere, are difficult people. Most often, it's the circumstances which are to blame. Pressure from funders, pressures from administrators, pressures at home, pressure from inside. Who amongst us is super well-adjusted? and whose life circumstances feel super well-adjusted every workday. And on top of life come other influences, like how our education system works or doesn't sometimes, or how a pandemic can change the way we do absolutely everything. A PI who has never been trained to manage people may not do well managing people. No big surprise there. And a health emergency may shut down labs and rob a good many of hardworking scientists of the resources, the opportunity, and the people to make their big discoveries. People really matter. Big discoveries will dominate headlines, and upon hearing the word science, our first thought will be of big discoveries. But it's people who make science, and it's people who do science. Nature Careers, the magazine content about scientists, tells the story from the people side. Here we read the human interest focus of science, scientific careers about, for example, how hard it is and how good it is to be a postdoc. Postdocs everywhere around the world go about their work in the lab in very similar ways, which hardly comes as a surprise when you recall that the work of science either upholds the standard or gets ignored. But this is not the same as saying that postdocs are themselves all the same, 
far, far from it. They are from different cultures and from different backgrounds, identify in different genders and in different ethnicities, approach the very same piece of work performed in the very same way from as many different angles as there are, as they are, different individuals. That matters to science because science is not all methods and equipment. Science is also ideas, innovation, unanticipated results, which call for unsought and untrainable and yes, even creative interpretations. People are behind every report you've ever read on science. The theories and the equations and the figures and the medicine and the technology may seem otherworldly, but they're not. This world is very much the origin of everything science, I mean scientists, have ever achieved. Scientists are, and excuse me, (laughs) so why does that matter? And who these scientists are and how these scientists live? That is the remit of David Payne, chief career editor at Nature. David Payne is a journalist who, during the 1990s and 2000s, published and collaborated closely with scientists. He was news editor at Nursing Times, and at the Food Standards Agency, David edited online content on the often complex UK and EU directives, ranging from food safety advice to nutrition. David returned to publishing for almost a decade as online editor of the British Medical Journal, when in 2016 he joined Nature. Today, David Payne and the careers team read and edit commissioned and non-commissioned work from writers and scientists across the globe. Nature Careers brings readers of science closer to the people of science. Nature Careers helps make nature be more than just a research journal. Scholarly Communication, this special series on the New Books Network, is the podcast about how knowledge gets known. We talk to educators and to editors, to writing academics and to reading academics, to those identifying with scholarship and to those identifying with communication, and of course, to those identifying with both, because scholarly communication aims to be the plus sign between. Scholarly communication is about scholarship, about the research, the work, and the instruction in writing. And scholarly communication is about communication, about the selection, the production, and the dissemination of knowledge. Wherever writing and knowledge connect, there the communication of scholarship is taking place, and there too we at Scholarly Communication have our place. So let's begin today's episode, David Payne and Nature. David, welcome to Scholarly Communication. Hello, Daniel. Uh, thank you for that great introduction. Um, delighted to be here. Very good. Um, I like to uh, begin our uh, interviews, uh, especially with people who have gone into publishing, to sort of retrace the steps that brought you into publishing, and especially to your uh, current position. Yes. Um, it was. Yes, I've, I've, I've been at Nature now for, for four years. Um, I, um, I joined in 2016, and I don't know if um, you remember, that was a, a re- pretty momentous year. Um, you know, I, I remember applying for the job the week that we, um, we here in the UK um, voted to leave the European Union. And uh, by the time I started at Nature, Donald Trump had been elected president. So my first year as careers editor at Nature was very much dominated by how science was impacted by those two um, developments. Um, and leaving that aside, as you, as you said in your introduction, I was very much drawn to the, the human interest aspect of um, the job. I was hugely excited when I saw it advertised and um, thought, you know, sort of at my career stage, it would be a really fantastic opportunity to go to work at Nature and to, you know, to learn a whole new, um, a whole new kind of uh, sector, really, that I hadn't had too much to do with. My focus before that was medicine. 
Um, and uh, as you said in your intro, you know, nursing and uh, a local newspaper before that. So I, I really love the the challenge of um, of coming here and finding out this out about this uh you know this amazing community of people around the world that do you know, the things that you described just then. All right, it's it's wonderful to hear uh, this idea that 2016, as you enter into nature. Uh, the world of science is also being affected by the world itself, uh, because that seems to be a topic that comes out so clearly in all of the uh, careers content that uh, these people who are doing this amazing research are, you know, just like the rest of us who aren't doing that sort of amazing research, maybe, or maybe not doing research at all. And their lives are, you know, a Brexit matters. The election of a Trump matters. Where they came from matters, et cetera, et cetera. Could you Maybe give us, after all your years now doing uh, careers content, a view into how it is that science, which society tends to view as you know an objective procedure, is so human and personal. Yes, yes. Um, I remember sort of very soon after starting, I think we were in early 2017, and we started getting, as you, as you said in your introduction, you know, the section is a combination of, you know, submitted articles, um, opinion pieces from working scientists and, you know, commissioned journalism. And um, we're very much guided by, um, you know, by, the, by the, the topics that people choose to write about. So I would say that the section very much reflects, you know, what working scientists are thinking and feeling. And it was very soon into my time at Nature that I realized we were starting to get lots of um, pieces about, um, you know, the impact of the Trump presidency was that, you know, the first thing that struck me, we, we very quickly published um, stuff about uh, fake news and, um, you know, about this kind of disdain for experts uh, and, um, you know, the, the resulting march for science that happened um, around the world um, during that course of 2017. So I, I very much picked up early on, you know, that scientists were, you know, were sort of concerned about the impact of, you know, the Trump presidency and uh, this apparent disdain for science. And similarly, you know, in the EU, there were genuine concerns, you know, certainly among UK researchers that, um, you know, that leaving the European Union would, you know, would affect collaborations, would affect career mobility, you know, would lead to this kind of, you know, kind of schism in the scientific enterprise. And it was really interesting to, to you know, to read the perspective of working scientists um, that were talking about that. And then, of course, as I, you know, as 27 became, became 2018, we started to get stories from scientists about, um, you know, visa struggles they were facing, you know, when, when the Trump um, administration imposed travel bans on you know countries on certain countries into the into the US. You know, lots of scientists were writing to us about um, you know what that felt like to be sort of to have gone back to visit family in say the Middle East, and then suddenly to face these curbs on you know re-entering the US and the impact that that was having on their career. So that was again you know another sort of hot topic that landed in our lap really. You know, just by listening to our community, which is you know so important to us. And then, of course, fasting forward to um, 2020, you know, we, we, we in March last year, um, you know, where all of us were facing this sudden, you know, change in our work, in our work patterns, you know, caused by the pandemic. Um, and again, it wasn't very long before we were commissioning and accepting submitted pieces about the impact of coronavirus and how suddenly with labs closed and all the very difficult decisions that scientists were having to make about their research programs, about funding, about juggling parenting from home, about you know living in very cramped spaces, often in very expensive cities and not being able to go into the lab to continue with their PhD or postdoc work. You know, these were the topics that we were getting and that we were addressing in the section. And then, of course, midway through um, last year, the other issue that hit was the impact on 
you know, the academic community on the on the death of George Floyd in the US and uh, the whole Black Lives Matter process. So when there was the shutdown STEM uh, movement uh, in, you know, sort of in the US and elsewhere, uh, we reflected that. I think very quickly, and actually I'm, I'm personally very proud of that, that my, you know, that I work with a fantastic team of colleagues that, are, that know so much uh, about the field that we work in. And, um, you know, we were very quickly, very nimbly uh, making sure that we were covering the impact of um, racism in science. Obviously, it's a wider issue for the whole uh, nature front half, which is what we call our, you know, our journalistic section um, in the magazine. But uh, for us, particularly in careers, you know, we were very proud to to quickly, um, you know, I don't know, test the pulse of how black and ethnic minority scientists were feeling around the world about this development and, uh, you know, the anxiety that was causing and uh, talking to them about what their hopes were, how they were finding allies in, you know, uh, expected and unexpected places. Uh, one thing that we published very soon after the Black Lives Matter protests was um, a piece about um, what, what we what, what I think is kind of termed the time tax or the cultural taxation of being being a you know a black researcher the, the fact that you are often asked to sit disproportionately on diversity panels to help institutions your employers solve the problems of addressing diversity equity and inclusion in the workplace and actually the career cost that that comes with so I'd naively assume that if you were a black scientist that you probably would be very proud and honoured to be asked to sit on these diversity panels. But of course, what it means is a huge time sink. It means that you are being taken away from your lab, from your research. You are helping your employer solve these very big issues and, you know, that you will have lots of expertise in that area. But I was listening to, um, you know, we're running a diversity podcast series at the moment, and I was listening to an interview, I think just yesterday, um, with a with a, um, a Brazilian, a female Brazilian researcher working in London who said that, you know, although she, you know, she, she's, she's um, happy to join these panels, that actually while, you know, while she is joining those and, you know, contributing and leading on diversity initiatives, that maybe a white male colleague has published a couple of papers uh, while that's been going on. Um, and it was just a really interesting thing that I, as a, you know, as a white man in my 50s, you know, hadn't really thought about. So I just love the fact that the section is giving a voice to, you know, so many different um, subsets of the scientific community. It's such a broad church and um, it's just a real privilege to to showcase those stories. And I'm, you know, I, I'm just so proud of what we do. Um, we don't always get it right, of course. Um, sometimes we publish things that people disagree with, but that's part and parcel of science, I say. You know, there's this healthy culture of debate in science. So, you know, even that, I would say, is an opportunity when something gets published that, you know, many people won't agree with. Um, it's very nice to see that debate played out on social media, as long as it's courteous and respectful, um, and you know, to to hopefully reflect the you know the the counter argument in the section. So uh, you know, again, that's another aspect of my job that I really really like. I think um, it would be really interesting to get a view of of this team that you say you work uh, so productively together with, who who you have so much respect for, and and have been able to come up with. Um, contents that uh, you can look back on with uh, such great pride, as you say, uh, maybe you can even take that example, unless something else comes to mind in, in, in the aftermath of the George uh, Floyd um, and the Black Lives Matter uh, movement. You say yourself, for instance, that this time tax or this cultural taxation hadn't been necessarily on your radar, but with all the work that you did as a team, you were unable to you were able to uncover this this uh, really important aspect of careers that's out there. And I wonder if 
if either that or something else you could give us a a view as to how the team operates and how the collaboration works and how the story gets moving and the interesting facts get uncovered yes yes um yeah that's a good question and uh, it's a, it's it's a huge team effort actually i mean when i my, my sort of immediate team that when I first joined Nature in October 2016 was I have a, a colleague, Karen Kaplan, who's based in um, in the US. And Karen has been at Nature as careers editor since 2008 and has a huge knowledge and experience of, um, you know, of scientific careers. And, um, you know, and also, I have to say, uh, also so a very uh, a fantastic memory. So Karen is, you know, amazing at sort of when, when any of us have a story idea, Karen will give some insight into how we did or didn't cover it in the past, you know, how we can move the story on. Um, Karen has a fantastic network of freelance writers. And, um, you know, we're really lucky at Nature to have this stable of journalists around the world that, you know, love writing scientific career content. And they are an amazing resource because they like, you know, like we also hope to have is their, you know, their, their ear to the ground. And, um, you know, that they regularly pitch story ideas to us. So the, 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 exact, the example I gave there of the time tax um, and the diversity story there, that came from, uh, you know, a freelance colleague of ours called Virginia Gewin. And Virginia really, really is massively interested in social justice. You know, it's, um, it's one of the things that she cares passionately about. So often we will, um, you know, publish things written by Virginia on that theme. Um, my other my other colleague in the immediate career stable is um, Jack Leeming, and, and Jack joined about a year before I joined. And Jack has a master's degree in chemistry, and uh, Jack's uh, core responsibility at Nature is is twofold really. So Jack oversees the community element of what we do. So Karen tends to lead mostly on the career feature content, so the journalistic content, with some exceptions, and Jack will lead on the career column. So. You know, Jack is in his twenties, and um, because the because the, the career section is so focused on the early career researcher experience, you know, Jack put it very succinctly to me one day when he said that Nature is the sort of journal that says no an awful lot to scientists because it has such a high bar for its research publication. You know, you to get a Nature paper published is a real career defining moment, um, and one to be hugely proud of. So. So, you know, Jack um, feels passionately that we should really support the early career researcher who is interested in writing for Nature. And, uh, you know, we like to be the journal that says yes, you know, certainly in the careers team. So, um, you know, we, we, of course, we do reject um, columns. We do reject submissions for all sorts of reasons. You know, if, if it's something we've got covered recently or if it's something that, um, you know, we feel isn't quite a good fit for us, you know, we will say no. But um, what we all really love doing is taking a, a first draft written from an early career researcher, maybe a PhD student or a postdoc, and, um, you know, really working closely with them to turn to turn it around and to to, to make sure that whatever we publish really speaks to the global community. You know, we, we have a global readership, so we're always very keen on stories that can be applied, you know, across the, you know, across the whole scientific enterprise in, you know, in many, many countries around the world. Um, we, we're very keen on this concept called service journalism, which is um, a term that I think was at, uh, coined by the editor of New York Magazine many years ago. And it's the, uh, the idea is that, you know, there is a very strong advice element in anything we publish. So we, what we really love to have in any story we publish is a very strong, you know, this is what happened to me. This is what I learned along the way. This is what I would do differently next time. Um, and here's my advice to you. So when we get a piece in that's written by, you know, a scientist who probably hasn't written such a personal and, um, 
you know, intimate piece, you know, with, with, I mean, careers are all about emotion. As you, as you said at the beginning, Daniel, this is all about people's lives. Um, you know, pe- people are very much defined by the job that they do. So we love to really bring out that element of somebody's personal career story about what happened to them, how they felt about it, you know, and what they would do differently. So, um, so that's that's a sort of whistle stop tour um, through the through the team as it um, as originally stood, and then um, you know we have a freelance podcast producer called Julie Gould, who um, was Jack's predecessor at Nature, and Julie tends to lead on the Working Scientist podcast series that we do. So um, we tend to do this. We don't have the resource to do a weekly podcast, much as we'd love to. Um, so what we tend to do is we now publish three or four series a year. So we choose a topic, you know, a hot issue in science, and I've alluded to diversity in science, and that's the current series which we're running through sort of February and March of 2021. Um, and we do four of those a year, and so they're four six-week series. And, uh, you know, we we, we we use the medium of podcasting, which you're very familiar with, of course, to to really bring out that sort of intimate story, you know, that to, to really get um, – to get – to get those career episodes and those career testimonies in 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 people's own words, um, there's something so powerful about that. Um, so Julie tends to do most of those, although we also use freelance uh, other freelance colleagues. Um, and then actually in July 2019, um, the team got slightly bigger because we inherited. Well, we we merged with a bigger team. So my job uh, now is as managing editor also includes Nature Outlooks, which are um, which are feature packages, um, usually on a disease area. Um, and the other product that we have in the team now is the Nature Index, which I would say is a, is a closer cousin to Nature Careers because the Nature Index is a database which tracks uh, um, natural sciences research output across more than 80 journals. Um, so it's a database that will enable you to, um, to type in an institution and to see how it ranks you know, internationally um, based on, you know, albeit a very limited metric, but um, it gives a sort of snapshot of how different industries, sorry, different institutions, uh, different cities, different countries around the world are faring. And on the back of that, the Nature Index produces um, regular supplementary content. So uh, that's another part of the team. And then most recently, we have a, a quarterly supplement that's published with uh, Nature Reviews Drug Discovery, and that's uh, called um, Biopharma Dealmakers. So that looks at the biopharma deal sort of industry, you know, so the biopharma industry and all the really important deals that happen in that. But uh, again, there's a career element to it because it's very much about showcasing the people that, you know, launch scientific startups and grow them and then will maybe merge with a bigger biopharma company. So um, so that's a, a whistle-stop tour of the, of the wider team uh, and how we actually choose to publish uh, what we do. I'd like to pick up one element um, from all that, and, and thank you. That's a, it's a wonderful overview that uh, really gives us a, a good picture of, of the working day. Um, the sort of balance, let's say, between the commission and the non-commission pieces. Uh, you mentioned very often scientists uh, writing for the first time about their careers and uh, sending in hot topics or personal topics or important topics uh, to nature themselves. And as I announced, scholarly communication has a particular interest in writing. And you mentioned also the the close collaboration, if I may even call it such, or at least the close uh, work together with these scientists to to bring the story into the right frame or into the right light for uh, nature careers. Could you tell us about how that um, plays out often? Um, maybe also going into at the same time uh, you know, about how much non-commission uh, material comes in and and other such matters yes um i mean i, I think the the 
there was there's one there's one kind of figure that sticks in my head, and I think uh, I think there was one point last year where we were getting we had forty submissions in in a week. Um, you know, most you know. So Jack is the Jack is the sort of the the triage there. So Jack is the Jack will look at them and um, you know make a decision accordingly. But I think it's a reflection of how popular um, you know and, and how how valued the section is that people want to write for us. And we tend to publish, I would say, two or three a week. Um, so of course we, of course, nature is a print journal, you know, dating back, you know, more than 150 years now. And there is a print section. Um, there is a print career section, which tends to mostly be, um, a feature article. So, you know, you, we're talking probably about sort of 50, um, between sort of 50 and 60, uh, features a year. Um, and some of them do run online only, but, um, you know, the, the, the lifeblood of that section, I would say is, you know, a sort of two to three page career feature of about 1500 words. Um, on a you know which we commission um, we do some writing internally uh, but the yeah but the career columns which tend to run online only and you know I'm, I'm saying online only I think obviously online is the is the is the platform now and certainly for early career researchers probably you know very seldom see a print issue um, certainly with labs closed and things so we tend to publish about two or three of those a week there are exceptions where we will do more than that um, but that tends to be the pace um, and, um, you know, the, the editing process, um, I, I listened to the interview we did with my colleague, Helen Pearson, um, quite recently. And, uh, you know, Helen talked about the processes that we have at Nature, um, which are pretty rigorous. You can imagine uh, a, a journal with the prestige that Nature has that, um, you know, not just the manuscript, um, the you know, the scientific manuscripts, the research papers go through a, you know, a very rigorous process. When an article does come in from a, from a, from a writer, um, you know, from a working scientist, it will be um, edited first by, you know, by by one person, then it will get sent for a top edit, uh, which was a term I hadn't, I wasn't familiar with until I arrived at Nature, actually. It's uh, it's that second pair of eyes that, uh, that another editor looks at, and, you know, we'll come to it very much from the reader perspective. So that, that combined feedback then goes back to the writer, um, who will hopefully um, resubmit, you know, a revised draft, um, addressing all the you know, often the many queries that we have and then of course when that process is finished um you know we're very fortunate at nature to have you know a, a fantastic team of sub-editors who you know will then um be sent the article to um to actually to, to do a sub-edit of and, and and that process is you know is fantastically valuable as well because it they you know they really do put themselves in the in the chair of the reader and think actually you know does that there's a there's a sort of um you know, check against jargon. You know, it's so it's so interesting. I think, and you probably feel this too, Daniel, as an editor, that, that how jargon can still creep through even after sort of many many versions, and uh, just making sure that we explain stuff. You know, what I love about nature is it it really champions, you know, um, you know, high quality writing. It really puts the reader center stage. You know, the reader has to really understand, you know, uh, a piece of news, a, a feature content. Um, a careers feature, so you know we t we 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 tend to over-explain. I would say um, the the other colleague, actually, I should mention, and I, I can't believe I've forgotten him, is, is Jeff Bacall, who's our technology editor, and Jeff also sits within the careers team. And um, you know that was a huge learning curve for me arriving at Nature and um, um, having technology content to top edit it. So Jeff, again, is hugely experienced. He's been a technology writer for 20 years now. And, uh, you know, he's a logical fit in the team because obviously technology is such a key part of um, scientists' working lives. And, you know, Jeff produces two uh, pieces of career uh, technology content per month. 
Um, so there is a you know there is a very strong overlap with uh, with careers there. But um, you know while I'm top editing um, a piece of technology content for Jeff. You know, I've had to realize now that I, I have to sometimes ask, you know, what he might think are probably silly questions. But uh, I, I do it always with my, you know, with my reader hat on. And, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not a scientist by background. So um, it's an interesting perspective. One of the things that, that drew me to nature was when I did my homework for the interview, I was very struck by a story from 1967 when John Maddox was editor. And, um, you know, John Maddox was a, you know, was a, a very forceful personality from, from what I gather. And uh, there, was a, there was a new recruit there who um, was, um, I think was, uh, I forgot what his job title was, but it was the year of the first heart transplant. And he was a classics graduate. And John Maddox asked him, as the presses were rolling, actually, back in 1967, to write a, an editorial about the first heart transplant. And um, this guy, um, who I think became the science editor of the New York Times, a guy called Nicholas Wade, said to John Maddox, um, I'm the least, you know, I'm the least person, you know, I, I'm certainly not qualified to write about the first heart transplant. I don't, you know, I'm not a scientist. I don't know what I'm talking about. And John Maddox said to him, I can think of no better reason why you should, why you were the right person to write that editorial. And, um, you know, this, of course, was decades ago. But I love that story. And I have to say, you know, when I, when I, when I did my groundwork for the interview back in 2016 and I came across that story, I just thought, wow, you know, like if nature is still like that, and, you know, here am I as a non-scientist working for nature, you know, bring it on, you know, that, how, how fantastic is that going to be? And I'm really glad that I actually persevered and put my uh, application in. That's that's wonderful. I mean, the uh, the idea that uh, the reader sits center stage and the idea that there are no stupid questions. Um, I mean, these are at the center of clear writing, aren't they? And it's something that I mean, you're talking about science uh, communication or you're talking about, uh, as you say, journalists uh, helping uh, scientists uh, bring out their content. And all of that is valuable. This idea that scientists also need to uh, recognize that um, sometimes they're not only speaking to their lab colleague. I mean, it doesn't even have to be a non-expert. Somebody just in a slightly different branch of their area of research could be just far enough away that the shortcut jargon or the typical phrases that they're used to reading in their 100 or 200 set of articles that are following this one particular um, object of inquiry, that that is going to actually hinder communication and, and opening up people's eyes to the importance of readers. I mean, it's it's an obvious thing for people who are generally focused on writing and care about quality of writing, but it's not something that, uh, that we're born with, let's say. It's something seriously that we have to have experienced ourselves quite a lot through a lot of reading and a lot of writing that went wrong and, and a lot of, of support. I mean, as you've very clearly um, uh, described, Nature has a fantastic editing system. Um, could, could you maybe say a, a word or two more, though, about the reader's perspective? Yes. Um, I, I mean, I, I, I would say, you know, having worked with uh, the scientific community for four years now, they're, they're an incredibly gracious, um, gra you know, gracious community, I would say. They are so receptive to feedback. And, you know, I, I, I've hardly ever gotten, you know, you know, I know what I'm talking about, you know, sort of don't, um, you know, don't, uh, don't try and edit me, you know, I, you know, I, I'm in fact, I think I've never had it, you know, there's, there's always, they're so receptive to feedback, and they really get why we, we say what we say. Um, and, you know, your, your point about science communication, there, Daniel, yeah, it's, um, you know, it, it, because science is such a, you know, a, a, 
you know, a, a huge family. You know, there's so many disciplines and subdisciplines that, you know, you, you can never assume that people will know what you're talking about. Uh, it it kind of came to the fore for me. Um, actually, this week, we, we've published a cluster of articles this week um, about artist and scientist collaborations. Um, so we have, you know, we have a, a couple of career features, a column, and uh, we have a, 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 a where I work article, which I'll talk about in a minute. But um, so, um, but there was a there was a there was a story there about uh, that, that idea that you know you're not just communicating to your lab colleagues here, and uh, that you know the revelation in the in from many scientists' perspectives who collaborated sometimes reluctantly with artists. So they would get a call from a you know from a sculptor, um, someone who does sculpture, or you know a poet, or a, you know a composer, saying, "I'd love to spend time in your lab, and I'd love to collaborate with you." on you know a piece of artwork that sort of demonstrates the science that you do and um you know some of them they were the very they were the, some of them were very open and honest and said well, i don't know if we've got the time for this you know we'll, we'll we'll put you in a corner and you know we'll give you half an hour a week and of course when the scientist when the artist turns up you know that doesn't happen the artist becomes sort of part of the team in a way and they they come to it asking curious questions they'll have done their research they will have read around the topic they won't you know they'll hit the ground running as it were but the the, the one that springs to mind was actually an article we published a year ago where an artist turned up and you know helped pose a research question and you know is listed as a co-author on a paper just because she asked a question that the scientist originally you know he will be honest about this um said was you know thought was a little silly um and it actually yielded a you know a kind of research question and a paper that got published so that's um you know that's i, I I love that story because it kind of demonstrates, you know, why we are right to to focus as much as we do on, you know, on the words, on, you know, what the words are saying, you know, is there scope for misinterpretation here? You know, would somebody who isn't a physicist understand this? Um, you know, another article that springs to mind was we published a year ago in January, um, a, p- a piece from a, a physicist uh, who had kind of moved from an environment so sorry a biologist that moved to an environment where he was collaborating more with physicists and interacting more and then someone who had done the journey the other way and it was a really lovely sort of two header piece um, about you know what it kind of you know slightly tongue-in-cheek talked about some of the stereotypes but um but actually said you know i'm learned i've learned so much here by just getting outside of my comfort zone and uh, you know, collaborating and you know, talking to colleagues that I haven't spent the last sort of twenty or thirty years doing so, and I'm you know, I'm a better scientist as a result of it. So um, you know, I love those kinds of stories. Actually, uh, you know, as I said earlier, it's all about you know, I did this, and this is what I learned, and this is you know, these, they're, here are the takeaway messages for you if you're thinking of doing something similar. Yeah, it, uh, that 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 story uh, with the physicist and the biologist uh, Sarah Bondik, I think, was the uh, yes. um, physicist entering the uh, biologist yes. uh, laboratory there. And I just think it was so wonderful. And also this series by Amber Dance, I believe it is on on uh, art and and the sciences. I think it's so wonderful when a few boundaries are crossed. They don't have to be broken down, but they're just crossed because of the new view that's given. I mean, she gives, uh, just to uh, uh, sort of follow up on what you're saying there about advice, she gives a number of points of advice on how to speak with biologists, how to, yeah. how to get biologists to even understand you. Um, but most of her message seems to be is, be confident in yourself, be confident in uh, the fact that you know, you're a thinker too, and just ask questions. And I think that that is, from what I've seen also of the um, arts uh, uh, articles so far, also the message that we, you know, science, let's say, 
doesn't have all the answers. They need the multi-perspectives. They need the input. Uh, one of the beautiful things I found in, in Amber Dance's uh, um, series of articles was that uh, she also gives some statistics on Nobel Prize winners and members of the U.S. National Academies and so on as having serious hobbies in the arts. So, I mean, this must help their thinking somehow. It's not a, a, a simply a, a one-track way to scientific success. Yes. Um, but I'm, 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 I'm detouring because I actually have another question in the back of my mind. Okay, <laughs> I just, I just really like, I, I like those articles. They were, they were very, very Thank good. Um, but the, uh, the, the point that you make about the uh, gracious community has exactly been my experience. I, I teach uh, writing here at Heidelberg University, uh, primarily to people in the natural sciences. And what they often have as a, a concern or as feedback to me is after we've talked through a piece of writing and perhaps I've edited or shown them possibilities, I'm just going to use scare quotes here. They would like to write nicer, but they're concerned whether or not it will be taken as seriously. So in other words, they have this concern about the norms and the style somehow competing with each other. And I wonder if um, that's, uh, with your your broad experience and broad contact with scientists around the world, if that's ever been a topic that might have come up or something that you've encountered. Yes. um, Yeah. I suppose one thing we often find, and I I should have mentioned it earlier, was, um, you know, often the the first draft that we get will be structured like an academic paper. You know, it will have, um, you know, an introduction and, um, you know, and and it will sort of introduce what's going to be talked about and then sort of do a conclusion at the end. Um, And of course that's, you know, that's, that's how scientists are, you know, trained and encouraged to write. Um, So, so sort of getting back to somebody and saying, you know, it's great that you've done this, you know, it's a really interesting read, but you know, we, we, we'd love it to get a little bit more of your personal story in here. We'd like, um, you know, I never quite say we'd like some emotion in there, but, uh, you know, I, I tend to, I tend to phrase it as I did earlier about, um, you know, what did you learn and, uh, you know, what would you do differently, those sorts of things. But, um, yeah, there is, I mean, there is always an, uh, an appreciation of it. And I mean, it is about collaboration, actually. I mean, collaborations are so sort of topical right now because of, you know, vaccine development. And, you know, I think that, that the public are aware of how scientists collaborate in a way that, um, you know, they probably weren't before COVID happened. Um, you know, and some of those collaborations are happening between academia and industry. And I, and I have to say, you know, that's another thing that, um, you know, we're very much um, conscious of in the, in the career section is that, you know, science is all about collaboration. And, you know, we aren't just about academic scientists. We're also about sort of scientists that work for nonprofits, scientists that work in industry. So we try and showcase all those different stories. Um, I mean, the, the, other, the other bit of storytelling that we do, um, which is something that we launched uh, just after Nature hit 150 years, was we, um, Helen, um, Helen Pearson, the chief magazine editor, wanted to launch a new section called Where I Work, which she um, very kindly um, offered to the careers team to develop. And this is, um, you know, in, in a print paradigm, it's the thing that goes on the back page of the print edition, but obviously it has an online life as well. And this is, um, I mean, even though collaboration is big in science, this is a picture of an individual scientist in their workplace. And, uh, you know, we were delighted to to be given this opportunity to to develop this section because, you know, we're sort of in, I think, week 70-odd now. And um, it's an amazing 
it's an amazing kind of canvas of all these different scientists around the world. Some of them work in labs, some of them work do field work, you know, some of them work in industry. It's um, it really is amazing um, to get these. I mean, it's a, it's a photo story basically. It's a three hundred word picture caption, but the focus is very much the art, and so it's a collaboration again with uh, the art team. You know, the, the the picture rules the day. We don't start writing or commissioning until we have a picture in in front of us and uh, you know we did a we we're very hot on diversity tracking at nature um you know and we're, we're trying to get better at it so for the where i work section on the back page you know karen you know karen kaplan who i mentioned earlier oversees that and you know has massively championed you know black female um underrepresented groups geographical diversity so i i you know we we'd love this to have a sort of educational resource in some way um so that actually you, you know children at school could just see how diverse the scientific workforce is and um you know i'm sure there's a beautiful coffee table book in it i really do i mean there's some of the images are so lovely and the stories that go with them but um just about your sorry daniel i'm 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 digressing here but your your initial the thing you just You're very much allowed to no no worries <laughs> okay. but you, you 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 your your point resonated with me earlier when you talked about um you know, telling stories. I, I, I um, one of our kind of sister products at Nature, we're Nature Masterclasses, and uh, they, I think they have a module. Um, it's a sort of a, you know a learning platform, but they have a module on scientific storytelling. And I, and storytelling is, um, um, I was chatting to Magdalena Skipper, who's our uh, um, editor in chief, the other day about this, and I hadn't realised that storytelling can be. It's sometimes seen by scientists as a slightly frivolous enterprise. You know, it's not. It's misunderstood sometimes and that you know the idea that you would you know not dumb down but uh, it's you know it's how can you tell a sort of simple science story um are you shortchanging yourself if you if you indulge in storytelling as a scientist and of course you don't but i think it's just a terminology it's a it's a misunderstanding um i would say a similar one that i also learned recently is networking i mean networking is a know is, is fundamental to science many collaborations are forged by people networking at conferences or you know online in you know in these kind of pandemic times but uh it's i think a lot of scientists see networking as something that's slightly grubby or one-sided or pushy um and they don't always feel very comfortable doing it and obviously it's a topic that we look at in the section as well and just to try and dispel some of those myths and to explain that you know it's a win-win when you when you network when you collaborate it's a 50-50 thing, I'm sure it certainly should be. You know, there should be mutual respect on both sides. And, um, you know, there should be gains on both sides. And it's a, it's such a fantastic opportunity to do it if you can do it, you know, across continents, uh, get all those different diverse perspectives into a research question. It's, uh, you know, what's not to love about that? It's funny you mentioned uh, storytelling because I, I very much have encountered that also in my teaching with people thinking, well, you know, this isn't exactly literature. We're writing a research article here. <laughs> and um, I think I think you're very much right. It's, it's just not quite the right term. And I've tried to find many different ways of putting it. And it seems that um, it's no surprise that scientists sort of trip up, let's say, a bit at the introduction methods and results almost write themselves in a way. And I think what I've noticed is that scientists tend to think in figures and data. And what the storytelling idea is more about, it's more about motivating events and questions and results and interpretations. So, you know, I mean, a story makes sense to a lot of people in that sense. But if you put it that way to scientists and say, well, really, you're just trying to show how things got 
to this point. And then it starts to open up as a possibility that they'll entertain and think about in perhaps more constructive ways. Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, we, we should we should agree at an alternative terminology here, shouldn't we? I mean, a good scientific narrative. <laughs> I don't know. Does that work? Um, I'm trying to think what. The, yeah, narration. Yes. No. Yeah, yeah. There's there are other ways of, of saying it. On it's funny, isn't it, that it's such a. I suppose you know, coming to this from my sort of journalistic background, um, you know, the ability, the the, the the telling a story simply and quickly, and you know, impact. You know, with an impact and a resonance. Um, you know, is so, so drilled into you um, that uh, you know. Obviously, there's a there's not a detachment from that process when you go through the scientific training, but uh, it's um, it's having to return to the to that skill set once you you know once you have to think about you know how do I communicate the science because you know I've been someone's given me a grant to do this and one of the conditions or the you know the requirements of getting this grant is that I actually do you know, that I can communicate it via, I don't know, a three-minute thesis competition or, you know, I can go to a school and talk to school children about the work that I do. Um, you know, there, there, are, there obviously there are so many opportunities now to communicate your science. Um, but, um, yeah, you know, I, I, I'd like to think that writing for the nature careers would enable, you know, an early career researcher to cut their teeth on doing that. So, um, you know, I said earlier that there was a week when we had 40 submissions in. We probably had more than that in some weeks, actually. But um, do please keep them coming because we are, uh, you know, we love getting them. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, uh, to come to ba- uh, back to working scientists and also perhaps uh, uh, science diversified in a moment, but there's been some recent uh, series in working scientists publishing a paper, for instance, by Adam Levy, uh, which uh, certainly gives many of the different perspectives that. Uh, you know, a writing scientist is is going to need down to the, you know, the publication process and the nitty gritty of finding the right journal, but also the writing process and points of, well, even if you're not a native speaker, what do you do with the language? Or even if you are a native speaker and aren't, say, the language type, what do you do with the language? <laughs> I mean, it's, it just gives, I mean, it, it is really the, in, in my opinion, the, let's say, characteristic principal feature of working scientists that you just get all the different views and that's that's really again with this publishing a paper adam levy uh, uh a series really what stuck out yes yeah but um but let, let, let's let's um if unless there's a different place that you'd like to go but the um science diversified which is in in the running at the moment, it's just uh, getting getting off. Uh, I think uh, as of today, there are two um, yes. of the podcasts that are that are up and published. It's going to be a seven part series hosted by you, but um, maybe you could tell us also something about its structure and the idea of hosting in it, uh, and and give us a brief overview of of what the um, what the podcast is going to be about. Yes, yes, no, thank you for that opportunity. Yeah, I'm very, we're very proud of Science Diversified, and um, you know, obviously, it builds on the stuff that we've done already. Um, yeah, I, 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 I just felt last year with the, you know, with the, the George Floyd and Black Lives Matter that, um, you know, there were that we need to, you know, to bring all these narratives together, and um, you know, obviously, not just address race, but uh, so we, we, we've, um, we worked with a, you know, a very talented. Um, uh, podcast producer called Don Byrne, who you know has done the interviews, and um, we chose. Actually, this was Don's suggestion. He he felt that this should be a presenterless series, so I, I do do the introductions to it um, each week, and we'll be doing for the sort of next um, for, for all seven episodes. But uh, we we just wanted the the voices to take center stage. So the the approach that we took was, um, you know, we 
the first episode goes to a, a, a North London primary school and we go with them, scientists at the Francis Crick Institute, which is just next door to just, you know, they're our near neighbour in, in London. And uh, they, they have a very, um, you know, their building is in quite a deprived part of London and they're really, um, they're really supportive of their local community. So they, you know, they have, I think they have this objective that every, I think every school child in the borough of Camden, which is where the Crick is based, will meet a Crick researcher during the course of their education, which feels, you know, fantastic. And, you know, the, the objective there is that they will go to schools and they will talk about being scientists and they will smash some of the stereotypes of, you know, being a, you know, an elderly white man in a white coat, um, you know, and a shock of hair um, and goggles. Um, so it's it's all about sort of explaining that science is not just about um about that so that we, we went we went out with them and uh, and Dom spent some time talking to the people that lead on their educational outreach and to some of the children that um, that look forward to Crick scientists arriving every year to spend the time with them and uh, hopefully getting a, re- a return visit back to the Crick to to do some work experience and then in subsequent episodes we're you know we're looking at the importance of allies and we're doing that from a gender perspective so um we have, um, you know, we have uh, two male researchers that very quickly picked up on how female researchers can be um, marginalised and talked over and don't get the same career opportunities. Uh, and you know, they 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 took some action, um, or you know, or tried to address that and tried to be supportive of their female colleagues. And then we have a, an episode on the LGBTQ experience, uh, which is a um, uh, an interview with a. Uh, a, a um, a gay male researcher and just talking about um, his experience and then a trans um, female trans researcher talking about their experience um, so um, then the, and other episodes we've got coming we're looking at race uh, we're looking at science from sort of unusual roots into science so we have an interview there with somebody who served a prison sentence uh, um, and then, you know, became a scientist uh, later in their career. And similarly, someone who worked as an accountant and then became a scientist. So, that, I mean, the, the, the theme underpinning the whole series is how much better is science when you have diverse perspectives? So that's the, the question that is asked of everybody that is interviewed. So although we've taken this very segmented approach, you know, looking at a, a different sort of topic or a different sort of community or subset one week, you know, that's the kind of the, the thing that runs through it. And then the series concludes, and I just uh, listened to the uh, the first draft of the episode today, with um, ableism in academia. And we talk to, um, you know, a couple of scientists who have a disability, and uh, they talk about how they could or couldn't open up about that when they first did their PhDs, and some of the things that they have experienced. Uh, and, uh, you know, just, again, some of the some of the kind of, you know, sort of, architectural issues really around how actually how do you make a building accessible how do you how do you um you know make it that you so you don't have to if you're in a wheelchair for instance as a scientist you don't almost have to go you know through the tradesman's entrance and go into the goods lift which just feels you know terrible really that somebody is feeling i don't know sort of um you know humiliated in that way uh and i think the person that we've got doing that is a woman called nicole brown who's an educational researcher and she um, hosted a conference actually, which she did from a very ableist perspective. So there was no queuing for lunch. Everybody was served at their seat. So it was basically making it a level playing field for all the delegates to this conference, so that there was no kind of networking that was been, that, that that only people that didn't have a disability could benefit from. Um, she, t- you know, she took this very creative approach. She doesn't talk about it in the in the podcast. She just talks more in terms of her own career. 
um, and her own experience of disability. But uh, you know, that's how the series is concluding. And of course, it's seven episodes only, so we've really only scratched the surface. And um, I'm already thinking of, you know, like probably we could return to this topic next year and do a follow-up series, you know, um, showcasing some other perspectives because I do feel that, you know, you can't really cover um, a topic, you know, exhaustively in sort of seven uh, half-hour, you know, 20-minute half-hour episodes. And, I mean, so far the two that um, are out and that I've uh, been able to listen to, they, they very much capture that core that you were just talking about, this idea that, you know, perspective matters. Um, it's, I think it's a wonderful idea that you might want to expand it on in next year and get more and more of these very important details and more of these perspectives. But the real core message that perspective matters, that educational background matters, that, you know, what you've experienced in your life matters because, you know, science may be laws of nature, but we'll never understand them unless we learn to stand closer together. That comes through so clearly, especially in the second one that I was listening to last night about uh, the Okinawa Institute of Science and Technology, or OISTAs, many of the people were referring to it as this, this um, let's say, this major gain that the scientific method and the scientific procedure has from many people doing it together and collaborating. I, I, I really have to say that I, I never quite saw it in that fashion. I mean, I knew that diversity mattered, but, but that it actually is productive for science. That, that comes out so clearly in the series. Mm. No, thank you. I mean, my, 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 the, my sort of takeaway from that episode actually was, um, I think it's the, she's a half Polish, half Finnish researcher who is obviously based at Okinawa, which is an, an island off the coast of Japan. And, um, you know, she talked about the diversity of her research group. And I think there was sort of seven different nationalities mentioned. And um, I, I found her, she was refreshingly honest about, the, you know, certainly the opportunities that you've just described, Daniel, but also the challenges, you know, actually, how can you, I think she used the phrase, it's easy to fracture, it's easy to fragment um, as a research group. If you're that diverse, how do you, you know, how do you rub along with each other? What's the, how, you know, what, what's the where does the tolerance come from you know how do you how do you accommodate so many different perspectives it it, it isn't um it's not as easy as it sounds actually and i and i and i really that really resonated with me when you know she was so honest about that um and if, you know leaving aside that aside it, it feels like a you know a really interesting place to be and if, you know because of its geographical location and because of you know this this idea that it's um that its founders had of actually really you know championing international recruitment and um, you know, I think they—I think is it eighty-three percent of their sort of uh, PhD students come from elsewhere outside Japan, which feels amazing, really. Yeah, I, I mean, certainly, yes. The the day to day and the interpersonal. Um, another researcher, uh, perhaps even her, I can't quite remember, said that uh, this community has to be actively formed. I mean, we need to also. I mean, there are many events which celebrate different religious holidays or which. Um, simply offer opportunities for cultural exchange as well. Otherwise, there would be, just as you say, this this fragmentation. But the perspective that I, I really took away, also uh, one of the um, uh, uh, a Russian uh, mm. was a PI of, of one particular group, and he was talking about how, you know, the educational background uh, are assets in a sense. You could never with just one educational background achieve the things that he wants to achieve. The He talked about the he had, he had a, has all of those scientists there in, in Okinawa and so many scientists across the world, you know, been in very, very, very many different educational systems. And he talked about sort of the, 
the European ethos, the American ethos, and and, and what's achievable with bringing them together. Um, because of yeah, they just offer uh, different uh, different advantages that would never have you know been possible otherwise. Yes, it was interesting listening to it's Dennis Konstantinov, wasn't it? He was the Russian researcher, and um, he reminded me right, yeah, when, yeah. when I was listening to Dennis, I was reminded of. Um, um, Actually, another podcast that we did, but also a careers feature, which is which I think was headlined "How to Fit in When You Join a Lab Abroad." And um, you know, it's uh, the, the the format of that was a what we call a Vox format, so it was sort of six perspectives, six different perspectives. And um, you know, it's uh, it it just talked about some of the some of the kind of cultural issues that you know that that, that divide us really. You know, sort of approaches to punctuality in different parts of the world, and uh, you know, the etiquette around. Um, you know how you greet somebody, and uh, you know if somebody says this, do they mean that, or do they mean something different? And uh, you know, this, I don't know. I'm thinking of this as a, as a, you know, as a, as a British person. Um, you know that sort of, you know that that, that courtesy, and uh, you know how how courteous is it really? You know, I don't know. It's uh, it just it made me really think actually about uh, obviously working at Springer Nature is a hugely, um, you know, internationally diverse uh, company. So. It's. Uh, I, I thought that was. I find that fascinating. Actually, I'm really glad that we covered that perspective in the in the podcast series. Yeah, and, the, and another very interesting and recent uh, career feature on postdocs. Uh, that same sort of perspective comes out, and it was also one of those moments where I thought, oh yeah, that's true. This international aspect of. Uh, scientific careers that people pretty much just expect to be moving through countries. Uh, what was also shown there were the, the sacrifices involved and also the the faux pas and the difficulties and the uh, walls run into and the misunderstandings that are involved. And, and just being away from your own culture, perhaps, you know, which with which you identify so closely, your own language in so many cases. Um, I think that's really what the career content brings out it just shows us again and again this is the theme running through this interview and i keep wanting to return to it i'll make it explicit again this idea that science isn't what we think it is or let's say i mean yes objectively it is it's reaching truths but we're doing it aren't we yes yes and and and, and i thank you for mentioning postdocs actually because um i think you may you may be referring to this article but we did we did a series of features last year on postdocs because we Again, we're very fortunate to have a, a budget that enables us to do an annual survey. So, you know, we've in previous years we we do we we had a sort of one year we do PhDs, the next year we would do salary and job satisfaction. But last year we slotted in a postdoc survey, and um, our motiv- yeah, that's exactly yeah. the one I meant. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So we, I mean, our motivation there was it was it was a, a conversation I was having with um, um, a guy called Sina Safai, who's um, uh, who's a careers advisor based in Chicago in the U.S. And, um, you know, Sina said to me one day that he saw postdocs as the most kind of neglected or vulnerable part of the academic workforce because they have this succession of temporary contracts and often, you know, their institutional employer, you know, some of them working industry, of course, but their their employers don't always give them the sort of career support that, um, you know, that say a PhD student would get, a graduate student would, you know, would get lots of maybe careers advice and, and sessions, and that doesn't always extend to postdocs. So I was really interested in capturing the postdoc experience, or, or rather we were. And um, so, you know, we, we did the survey last year, which had, you know, sort of six and a half thousand responses. Um, and, you know, it yielded, I think, uh, four features in the end, because obviously COVID happened. Uh, so we, at a rather late stage, managed to introduce lots of COVID-related questions, which again gave a, a snapshot of how the pandemic, um, you know, at that early point in the pandemic, actually was was 
was kind of impacting, you know, the the postdoctoral researcher, what you know, what they how they were perceiving it, you know, were they their concerns around sort of, I don't know, higher education being decimated as a result of it, because, you know, there wouldn't be that sort of international mobility and, you know, you wouldn't be getting students, you know, studying to go into different parts of the of the world to study. So there would be a, you know, there would be a, a financial impact there. So I was I was really glad that we um that we did that survey. And again, you know, everything that we do, we we just looked at the findings and uh, hopefully will yield other things that we didn't know about before. Um, the one that really stands out for me is when we did the PhD survey, obviously the mental health struggle that lots of um, early career researchers are facing, you know, for all the pressures that they face um, to publish and to, you know, to, to, to find employment, um, you know, it really can take its toll. And if they do have an unsupportive um, supervisor or somebody who, you know, probably hasn't had sort of, you know, an awful lot of management or leadership training, you know, that can have an impact. But also the extent to which so many of them were hankering for an academic career. Um, so if you, you know, lots of PhD students told us a couple of years ago that they still wanted to work in academia. And of course, the reality is that, you know, academic jobs you know, are, are finite, you know, there is a limited number of them. And that you, it, you are not failing if you become a scientist and you're not working in academia. In fact, you know, you can forge a fantastically successful career working in industry or for a not-profit, for a non-profit. So uh, that, that was a, this, this surprise that you get by sort of taking the data, data-driven approach and it's surveying your audience en masse uh, can come up with all sorts of interesting insights that, uh, you know, that really um, influence what we cover in the section and how we cover it. Yeah, Julie Gould does a wonderful job with that on one of the parts of her uh, postdoc series as uh, this, you haven't failed if you enter industry and the entire um, switch over to industry that many postdocs are just necessarily going to have to make. She gives us the shocking figures of, uh, you, you say there's a narrow selection of of academic posts or a finite selection. I mean, it, uh, it's extremely finite. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, re- the realities are just, you know, that... Uh, these fantastic scientists are just going to have to somehow accept that they can also still be scientists in a you know slightly different fashion. And uh, she she handles that um, that particular part of the series really well, I found. And again, the advice is there. She talks to industry insiders and and uh, you know readies the postdocs for well, what are they going to face? Because industry is also somewhat suspicious or not as welcoming of of people from academia as as we may think. Yes. Um, they have their own concerns and their own way of doing things. Yes, that was. I, I remember that episode. It was. Yeah, I mean, Julie did a fantastic job, which she always does. But that, that um, yeah, that that was quite, that was quite revealing, wasn't it? The honesty of them. You know, don't. I mean, it, it was a it was a challenging one to headline that. Actually, it's like you know, don't think that if you turn up in industry that you're going to be, you know, that you'll be sort of on a fast track or that you'll be, you know, that we'll stuff your mouths with gold, you know, you're, you're moving sectors and you, you know, you might need to kind of start at a point in the career ladder where, you know, you, you feel that you've been slightly shortchanged, but, uh, you know, if you, if you stick with it and, um, you know, work hard, you know, the rewards will come. But, uh, yeah, there was a, there was a, there was a real honesty to that, wasn't there? And I, I thought I was really, it was a really interesting episode that one. I'm uh, quite interested in the uh, PhD and, and postdoc content now, also from last year in particular, That's that goes into the career sections. I, I have begun to just, um, here at the Writing Center, we get many people who are postdocs or PhDs turning to us for writing support. And I 
I send them also or, or, or tell them, you know, be regularly reading uh, the front part of nature because there's just vast amounts of information in there that are useful for your decision making and for realist, you know, reality checks and what's exactly going on. And and when I hear them talking to me, uh, I I see the data in your surveys. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it's it's really a corroboration. Uh, for example, uh, just the fact that uh, postdoc is, as, as Julie Gould spends her time trying to define it, it's a slippery term, but postdoc is essentially a stage in training for a scientist. And it's quite a shocking number if we look that uh, 90% of respondents were saying somewhere between uh, zero to three hours a week they spend with their PI. You wonder, <laughs> how is this training actually going on then, or is it going on? Yes, yes. I am. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? About the, uh, I mean, the, the. I'm saying this as a, you know, as a sort of, <laughs> you know, sort of team leader in a sense. I, I, I we we looked at, um, you know, there was a, a nature special a few years ago on the health of research groups, which um, you know, is a kind of front half, you know, sort of the journalistic, the magazine section sort of collaborates on a, you know, looking at a topic in lots of detail. And um, you know, I remember our careers contribution there was the, you know, the, what can academia learn from other sectors around, um, you know, around management training about how, you know, how leaders are groomed. And um, you know, I, I, I suppose as a, you know, as a manager myself, I have some sympathy with. With um, you know, somebody who gets gets a new role and you know doesn't have that sort of support always or that sort of encouragement to go on to do courses that will actually hone their leadership skills, um, you know, and teach them how to lead a team, um, and you know the, the the dilemma that many of them face around sort of focusing on their own research and actually sort of championing others in their team to do to do their research as well. So I mean, I know. Obviously, you know, in, in any sector, as you said so eloquently at the beginning, Daniel, you know, people, you know, everybody, so many different personalities come to any workplace and, uh, you know, not everybody is supportive as they could be. But, uh, you know, I would love to, I mean, I had a conversation with somebody in Montreal this week um, about the mid-career researcher and, uh, you know, what more we can do in the section to support the mid-career researcher. And, uh, you know, I hope we can make that a bit more of a focus and probably look at some of the training gaps that, you um, that a mid-career researcher might face as they do or don't, you know, climb the ladder to, you know, leading an independent research group and, uh, you know, the skills that they need there to, to lead a team. So I am, um, I mean, I'm, I'm really interested in that sort of um, aspect of the career journey now, because we, you know, we, we really do focus on the early career researcher and I think we're right to do so for the reasons I already described, but uh, there is a, there must be a particular set of circumstances that mid-career researchers face. She used this phrase, the mid-career slump. Um, and explained, you know, what causes that slump. And, you know, since then, we've been thinking in the team about how to, um, you know, how to address that and what, we, what, what can we do to support the mid-career researcher. I think that's wonderful, this, this uh, just, just getting a, a, a broad focus and then detailed focus on all the different aspects that are going on in science because it's just, I mean, it's just so helpful to, see exactly how it all works. I mean, if you're actively at research, I think a lot of this information and a lot of this input, and, and especially when it overlaps with your experience or perhaps gives you a new perspective, it must be gold. It must be the kind of thing that you know reassures or I'm thinking of one wonderful uh, article right now, uh, the one uh, by Anna Tellis and Flavia Viana, where they talk about uh, Native Science, that nonprofit uh, which runs science communication 
uh, for children across Europe, where essentially scientists who are just so used to, uh, both of these uh, uh, scientists happen to be Portuguese, so used to doing the science in English are now put in front of mostly native speaking children, some not of their own uh, native language. And they're meant to do outreach. They're meant to talk about uh, their science or science uh, in general in schools. And uh, the the results were positive in both cases in the story. Uh, I mean, it was challenging and wonderful, but it also rekindled interest in uh, in their research. And I just I just found the perspective on the fact that people returning to their native languages were somehow with English then in, in battle, <laughs> trying to figure out exactly how to put these things. Yes, I, that was a great article, wasn't it? I remember reading that and thinking that what a you know what a joy that must have been to have been able to you know here you are working in a country where you know you, you're whether you know your which isn't your native language and then you suddenly have this opportunity to communicate your science in your native language to a to a you know a group of uh, school children and um when i was reading it i was reminded actually i had a colleague um who's left nature now called joanna soria who was a uh, portuguese and um joanna once had lunch with me and she was saying that she obviously she'd been through the sort of the, the scientific career journey and she said no you you know you don't understand what it's like david to have to suddenly you know be a um, an early career researcher and not have english as your first language and i think she'd done her phd in paris um she's from lisbon or from portugal originally and uh she she collaborated actually with one of our freelance one of our um, freelance writers called chris woolston on, on just unpicking that a little bit actually how in t- you know how hard is it to uh, here you are you know you're you're away from home you know you are on the first kind of you know the first graduate student experience you're having and suddenly you're having to you know liaise with lab colleagues in not probably in in french or you know or english and you're not too familiar with it um so i'm i'm really glad that we yeah again we covered we covered that story and and and, and you know and the variation on the theme really which was those two researchers that talked about doing the outreach in their mother tongue and how fantastic that felt yeah and i'm glad you i'm glad you like that one daniel you 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 know our content so well i'm hugely i'm flattered that you um you've engaged with it to the extent you have it's fantastic to hear thank you and it's it's a wonderful resource for me to prepare for my students because i'm i like you i'm not a scientist i come from an english background just like you and um, i'm teaching them writing but uh, i need to understand also where it is that they're coming from and of course i listen to them but to also get this uh, you know, global view, which uh, the Nature Careers content and and and, and Nature, uh, the how do you call it, the front end or the front <laughs> half of the magazine, the, <laughs> um, uh, um, generally offers. Yeah, I mean, in, in the news or in culture or whatever the perspective, I just I just find that uh, fantastic. Definitely. Yeah, I, I think this would be a wonderful chance for you. Um, I've tried to touch a number of bases, but I'm sure I've missed bases in the meantime. So. Um, this would be an interesting moment perhaps for you to speak about something that you feel needed emphasizing or maybe even also upcoming projects which you're particularly excited about. We've looked ahead a little bit, certainly into the science diversified, but anything else on the horizon that's particularly uh, in your uh, area of interest right now? Yes. Um, just trying to think, wow, you, I think we've covered so many so many topics. I, I... I'm at that point in the, in the year, I suppose, where we're thinking about the survey again. So, um, you know, we, we do the survey sort of during the summer and uh, we, we like to kind of 
repeat questions, of course, so that we can benchmark and see how things are changing. But we are due to do one on salary and job satisfaction this year. So that will, um, you know, that, that process is going to start very, very soon. So we'll be looking at what we asked three years ago now and, um, you know, what we should also, what we should be asking this year. Um, and I suppose it brings me back to the point I was making at the beginning is like so much has changed in the world since we last did this survey sort of politically um, and obviously also from the pandemic perspective. So we will definitely be introducing questions um for that audience. And the thing about this survey is, of course, it straddles both academia and non-academia. So we'll hopefully get some real insights into the, you know, the career experiences of scientists that don't work in academic institutions, uh, which is, you know, we, we, that's another priority area for us. I mean, we, we do it anyway, but we really want to sort of go to the next level, I would say, this year to make sure that we really are covering off that career path in a, in even more detail than we than we than we have been, um, and of course the mid year the mid career um, stages I talked about as well. So I'd say those are the so that's the sort of the, the on the careers front that's the challenge, and obviously other things you know in the team. Um, you know, we're, we're, obviously the, there's the outlooks that we're looking at doing, and um, uh, you know changes to the nature index, which is moving on to the nature platform, which. Um, you know, it doesn't sound, uh, it, which, you know, is, is, is an important development in terms of raising the profile of the Nature Index. So we're very excited about that. So lots of other, you know, sort of not internally focused things, but uh, sort of infrastructure challenges that we're going to be uh, embarking on this year. Very good. Well, David, you've been very generous with your time. I, I do have one last question, and that is, what is the one thing that you hope for sure that every piece in the career's content achieves? Oh, ah. <laughs> that's a question isn't it um, it's the last question <laughs> you know what i think um i think it is about emotion and i i just want people to i want it to not tug at your heartstrings that sounds cheesy but i i feel like the, we, we spend so much time at work and work is such an it does define us rightly or wrongly actually you know so so much of what we do is mediated through the the jobs that we do we spend so much time with our colleagues you know probably more than we do with family members often um so I, I i just hope that every single piece we publish you know resonates with i do you know we can't resonate with everybody of course you know because it, it's a it's it, it's a it's a very diverse workforce and you know fragmented and you know according to disciplines and geography and, and um, life stages and uh, you know ethnic backgrounds and all sorts of things but um you know whenever i whenever i read any piece of content i always think how many um, how many boxes are we ticking here? You know who who is going to be interested in this? And uh, of course the you know the 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 the, um, the target audience currently is the early career researcher. But of course you know you have all sorts of halo effects there as well. You want to think that funders are reading it, that they're you you know they're finding it a useful take. Uh, people like yourself who obviously sort of train um, people to 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 write uh, uh, as a scientist. So you know the hopefully stuff there that's of interest for you. Um, lab leaders, policymakers, thought leaders. Um, somebody once, I remember once we posted on LinkedIn when we were doing stuff around mental health saying, you know, we're going to be looking at this in more detail. And, um, you know, somebody came back quite rightly said, well, oh, great, you know, that's great. You're going to look at it in more detail. You know, what else are you going to do about it? And of course, we are a, we're a publication. So, you know, we are limited in many ways about what the influence that we can have. But of course, we are read by so many movers and shakers. Um, you know, so nature is a nature is on lots of people's 
bedside tables, you know, on their saved among their favorites. You know, we have the fantastic nature briefing that goes out every day and is, you know, massively popular. So um, I just hope that whatever we publish, you know, resonates somewhere, makes change, causes people to reflect and, you know, more importantly, causes them to return again and again and again. Well, that's great. And I I would say, for one, my perspective on that is that nature publishing it is doing something about it. So I, I would I would back you up on, on that view of it very much so. Thank you. Uh, thank you uh, for your time. And uh, that is uh, David Payne, Chief Careers Editor at Nature. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is goodbye from me to David. Goodbye. Goodbye, Daniel. Thank you. And, and this is uh, goodbye to all of you. Bye-bye until next time here on Scholarly Communication.